Hey, this is Mark Tremonti from Tremonti, and you're tuned in to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott here. And Richie. And uh, happy to be back talking to you once again. And happy to, uh, holy crap, have Richie back in the studio again. But uh, I don't think he was going to miss this because uh, he was uh, really enthused about the interview that he did with uh, Pat and Tony from XYZ, which is what we have on the agenda for you this week. Yeah, um, I've decided to keep the throwback episodes going (laughs) um, because there's never an end to them. Nope. We just keep uh, going back. If I can get the guys on to agree to talk, it, I will. Um, yep. And so these I'd, guys were good. Yeah. I just, so I, just, I, I hit up Pat and asked him to come on. He said he'd love to. Although every so often, as, the, you know, as I was editing the interview, I just kept thinking at certain points, Pat began to sound like Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> <laughs> it just was like, what am I listening to? Yeah. But, yeah, so, but great so interview. They're out there. With um, Tony Lewis again, they're doing shows. Of course, Tony's not in Great White anymore, so that kind of frees up a lot of time. And so you do get into some of that in the interview, we too. We do. Um, in a good way. Pat, oh, yeah. Pat was very honest about a lot of stuff. Um, the main reason I had him on was uh, was to talk about the debut record, which came out in 89. Mm. Uh, Don Dockham produced it. Uh, we get into all, all of that, all the, the hassles trying to get signed and... Pat's very funny. He's got a very good memory. Uh, and it was great having Tony on because I didn't know I was getting Tony uh, until I called. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when Pat said that Tony is there, I went, fuck, what am I going to ask him? <laughs> uh, because I was going to ask about the debut record. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting with Tony because... I could ask him about playing Mark Diglio's parts. Right. I mean, you worked, it, he in, he worked it in really well. And all that. And, and, you know, Tony was great about it. Uh-huh. And I've been, I, since we did the interview, I've been texting Tony every now and again. Really nice guy. Great guitar player. Um, they're writing new music, which yep. is great. Yeah. Um, and I've that's always, actually where you caught them was in the studio. Yeah. I've yep. always loved that band. Um, they don't have that many records. They've got the first two and then mm. grunge hit and that was the end of them and uh, they'd let her from God in the, in the mid-90s. But other than that, they haven't really released much. Yeah. Um, so hopefully next year we'll have uh, we'll have some new XYZ music. Yeah. But great chat with Pat. Very funny. Great memory. Very honest. Yeah. yeah. Um, just great to talk to guys like that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you say then? I mean, I keep saying it's a great interview. Why don't I just run it? Yeah. All right. We're actually in Denver, Colorado. Okay. We're recording a couple of songs today, and uh, this is actually a good time because you get to have more than one guy at the same time. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll talk, we'll talk about the new stuff up front and the band getting back together. But one of the things yeah. I do want to get into, Pat, I want to talk about the debut album. That's I think it's, yeah. 30, it's thirty years old this year, and talk a little bit about that. If you imagine that thirty years, oh my god! <laughs> and you're still playing music, Shit. and we're still above ground. You're yeah. still above ground, yeah. <laughs> barely, barely, barely above ground. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Left. Hey, every time I drive in front of a cemetery, I think, man, it's not that far away. <laughs> 
so tell tell me tell us about the new stuff, Pat. When, when did you start writing it? Well, we uh, we we kind of decided uh, to go uh, to bring old songs into the set, and that's how it started. Because we looked at old songs we never recorded, and we kind of thought, well, you know what? Uh, some of those songs need to be revisited. And by the time we actually got in the studio to look at old songs, we decided to create new ones. And that only happened really about three months ago. So it's kind of a new thing. And, you know, we didn't really have, or we still don't really have a clear plan of action. We just went in the studio. We kind of isolated ourselves. And we thought, if it sounds like shit, no big deal. And we'll walk away. But uh, listening back to some of the playback, we thought, well, shit, you know what? There's a couple of good songs in there. So maybe... Maybe we should uh, put a record out, and that's how it started. So now we have about, you know, about a half a dozen songs that are promising. We want to write another six or seven, and uh, obviously by or, or hopefully by uh, July, maybe the end of July, we'll uh, do the real recording. Hmm. Do you have, do you have a label? We're talking to a couple of labels. Of course, today, the labels of the past are long gone. We're no longer associated with EMI or Capital. And all the major labels don't really uh, sign anybody unless they're 16 with a miniskirt nowadays. So it's, it's impossible to get a major deal like we did back in the day. But the, the, the upside of that, if you will, is that the, the, the few labels that are around uh, are around because they love the music and they're uh, uh, managed by people that are really, really into the scene. So in some ways, you don't get the power of the major label, but you, you, you do get the involvement and the love of people that are actually in it for the love of it. And that's mm. fantastic. Yeah, I think, Pat, as well, you, you don't get buried in a label. Like one of the things I've heard from musicians over the years is there was so many bands on the label that their band never really got looked after. That if you're on a smaller it's label with... Got same, absolutely. I mean, uh, we were on Capitol for, for years and it was fantastic. But at the same time, Pink Floyd or Elton John is on Capitol. So how the fuck are you going to compete with that? <laughs> you know, when Elton John called, I'm sure they answer their call. When I call, hey, 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 maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, you know, I can't say I can't say a bad thing about the major labels. To be on the major label in the '80s uh, did give you a, an amazing boost of, of of power. You got to be on MTV and on the radio, and you had a major tour and a tour bus and all that good stuff. You know, so so you can't look back and say fuck the corporations. No, I I always love the big corporations on the level when they start to invest money in your band. You kind of love it, you know. Hmm. It, but nowadays, different, different debt. Uh, the people that are surrendered, uh, uh, that are surrendering the band today, are people that don't have necessarily the funds, but they have the love, and that's kind of what we want. Hmm. Now, is it easy now to keep the sound that you're well, you're known for? Because you're all a lot older. You've got new guys in the band now that were. That from from the, the first, you know that weren't on the first couple of records, they're going to have different influences and in, and in, in, in different ways of playing. So, is, is it easy to keep that X Y Z sound that you're known for? Well, you know, I'll answer quickly on that, and I'll let you talk to Tony about it because Tony, yeah, our guitar player today, he's been with the band really since ninety or ninety one, so that's quite a few years. 
so within that time, which is about 25 years, he has uh, 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 developed uh, an affinity for what we had, and he was smart enough to bring his own little je ne sais quoi to the table, if you will. So it, it's actually, uh, guitar-wise, I think, a, a little bit more uh, uh, rich or a little bit more full, a little bit more uh, uh, rounded than we had in the past. Because uh, when we entered, the, we went in the studio with Mark Diglio. Mark Diglio is a fantastic guitar player. Mm. But we were we were very young, and we 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 just kind of turned the amps up, and then we just played. And we didn't realize that we we would have to emulate that later on for years and years to come. So no, it's not that difficult to recreate something because the creation of it was not really calculated. It was very simple. It was a very simple process. We went in the studio, we cranked a couple of Marshalls, and we played. And uh, that was it. Mm. So to redo that today is not that difficult. We have the same equipment. Uh, Tony is a fantastic guitar player. Uh, he's been with the band for 25 years. And we're not asking Tony to recreate the past. We're asking Tony, and I'll put him on in a second. Sure. We're asking Tony to... to be mindful of the past, but to bring his own little sense of, of 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 himself to the table, and I think he'll carry on with the technology or the technicity of trying to recreate that. Mm. Right, mm. Um, if I may, uh, you know, before I I joined the band uh, in '91, I believe it was, uh, I was a fan, and at the time, my uh, my. Uh, friend from New Jersey was the drummer you know the original drummer so I was kind of a friend of the band from when Paul got in the band yeah so I was a, I was a fan I mean I was at all the shows I used to actually help Mark with his gear I think uh, you know just whenever they played in town I would bring up backstage and help out Mark with his guitars so I was kind of his like kind of you know kind of a guitar tech at the time and uh you know and over the years it just i i you know paul was in the band and when they actually they were on the road when they needed a guitar player and they needed a guy in like two weeks and paul said i i'm telling you get tony out here and he's like well you know you're the only guy that knows the songs <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it was like, you know, and I didn't have much experience. I had a lot of playing knowledge and playing ability, but not too much experience. So really, um, XYZ was the first show I did with them. And I believe it was Orlando at the station back in 1991. And, um, you know, so it was my first time in the band. And, you know, and being a fan of Mark's and getting to play his style, you know, honestly, he, his style was a lot like mine from the beginning. So uh, that's why I was such a fan of, of the band and Mark, you know, because it was like with all the Hollywood bands going on, all the glam bands, all the big hair and the tight jeans and this and that. It was like I, I when Paul got an XYZ and I went to see Mark play, it was just a bluesy rock guitar band. And I loved it. You know? mm. and, that's a, and that's right. That's right along the, the lines that I grew up playing, you know, between Steve Ray Vaughan and Randy Rhodes, Eddie Van Halen. That, that was kind of my thing, mm. you know. So, so you nat you naturally write in that style anyway. It's not something yeah. you're not you're not used to. Yeah, it was it, it, like when I actually like I would listen to the songs and then I kind of learned the songs just by listening to them over and over again. 
but I was I was a fan. You know, when the first album came out, I was I was there with the guys, and I was, um, you know, I actually I think I came out on some of the recording, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 a style that I, I was kind of already familiar with and right up my alley. Hmm. You know, so it wasn't like I was stepping into uh, unfamiliar territory, you know, and then playing all of Mark's riffs over the years, I got to kind of know how he thinks and, you know, so it, it really, but it's, it's not too far off from what I would do, hmm. you know? So, uh, so yeah, his style was very similar to mine, basically what I'm saying. Uh, so yeah. it, it was rather easy, an easy, uh, transition other than the fact that I had like probably zero experience in live shows. <laughs> <laughs> so my first show was like in front of like 2000 people at this bar and, you know, and, uh, and my knees were shaking, so you know the the text they 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 <laughs> nicknamed me Greeny, <laughs> and, and I am still Greeny till this day to most people that that know me that well, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if I may interject, the first day you came in, Tony, you got uh, you got straight out of the bus onto stage, and we connected to the same gear. So the gear was the same. Yeah. Did you play with your own guitar? Yeah. Yes. It was yes. your own guitar, yes. but the amplifier, the pedals, the, the processing was all the same. So the sound was pretty much similar. Yeah. The sound was already kind of 90%. Okay. Right? And then uh, we kind of maintained that sound because that's kind of what we're known for and that we don't want to change things around too much. Hmm. Can, I, can I ask Tony a question? Um, sure. Uh, if you were in the band since 91, you didn't play on Letter from God, did you? No, I did not. No, I, that was, uh, I think, a bunch of different musicians. I think Jake yeah, and... Nor did I, to be fair, nor did I. It was Paul Monroe on drums and Terry Luce, of course, uh, singing. I was, at the time, uh, signed to Interscope uh, to a different band, a punk band, and I was not allowed to, uh, to double dip, so to speak. So I was only allowed to write the lyrics which I always do for XYZ. So I wrote the lyrics for Letter to God, but I was I, I didn't play bass, nor was I involved with the, the production of it or the the recording of it whatsoever. Yeah, and at the time, I actually was, you know, uh, playing with in, in a band with uh, Stephen Piercy, and we were on the road and touring and stuff. Like, you know, we kind of... Arcade, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, played with, I played with Arcade for a couple of years, and they were with Epic at the time but uh and then you know i, I kind of went off and did a bunch of different projects you know and then we we, we basically reconnected in 2008 i believe for the yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. The Oklahoma. that was kind of like when it was like hey let's let's get back together and do this man you know <laughs> <laughs> now be before that in the early 2000s there was definitely um an uptake in melodic rock. Were were, were 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 you being asked like to go out as XYZ before then, or was it you know like in like two thousand two thousand and one there was certain festivals cropping up in the UK that had melodic rock bands on it. Um, was it just out of the blue you got back together in two thousand and eight, or did you want to do it before then anyway? No, the first time we considered a, 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 a reunion, so to speak, was in two thousand seven for the first Rocklahoma, which was the very first festival in the U.S. that kind of brought back the, the band from the era. And when I saw the bill, I was like, oh, there's a lot of great bands on it. I thought, that's, that's not going to work because nobody, nobody wants to hear that nowadays. It turns out the festival was very successful, sold out. 
so the second one in 2008, I thought, you know what, let's let's do it. But I was really kind of iffy because the music was not on the radio. The, the new generation didn't seem to care about that kind of stuff. It, it was a different era. But we did the show, and it was packed, and it was sold out, and the crowd knew every lyric, and they had banners floating in the air. And I was like, man... Where the, who the fuck are those people? <laughs> <laughs> so really, prior to that, I must say, prior to 2007, I uh, I considered uh, with Terry putting the band back together. But to be fair, financially, the offers that we were getting were, were it, it, it was not working for us. You know, to get on the road today or to do a show, it's actually kind of expensive because nobody nobody really has a tour bus anymore. You got to get uh, uh, you got to get yourself on an airplane uh, with the minimum gear, and then you need to have a back line on the other end, and uh, you need hotels and transportation from the airport and all that good stuff, and and you need a minimum of money to be able to do that. So unless you get the, the, that very minimum, doing a show is it's kind of it's kind of difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Especially for four people, we're four people with one crew. We only have one crew with us, and uh, you got to kind of consider that. You know, five people on an airplane, hotels, Uber, Lyft, dinners, all that. Eh, it gets a little bit expensive. So we, we at the at the end of the day, we professionals. So we want to get paid for what we do. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, would it be fair to say that? The reason you haven't done any, a new album up until now is because Terry was with Great White. Well, Terry was was Terry had a dead job. I like to call it a dead job. Yeah, he went he went to work for another band because the band was giving him good money, and that's fair. You know, we we all have bills, we all have to pay rent, we all have uh, uh, expenses. We have cars and rents and homes and and mistresses. And drug habits and, 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 and alcohol is very expensive. Cocaine right. is, is ridiculous. <laughs> now, I don't know. Talking about cocaine, did you see that they busted in in Philadelphia yesterday? They busted a cargo coming from Bahamas with thirty tons of blow. That's why my guy has to call me. Back. That's right. And who does blow? And my question was, who does blow? <laughs> but no, you're right. It, 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 uh, it, it was the great white thing. Uh, we, we've known great white for years and years and years and years. We were friends back in the day. Jack Russell. Uh, yeah. We, we, we used to hang out all the time. We kind of lost track after the, after some of the, 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 the tragedies that they were involved with between the drugs and the, and, and we all know what happened. So we, we kind of dropped out of that scene, if you will. And when they, they called Terry to replace Jack, I, I was, I was kind of surprised because we were not even talking at that time. But you know what? They probably offered him. I don't know what they offered him, but they probably offered him enough money that he, he said, fuck it, I'll do it. But uh, such is life, you know. So we waited uh, four or five years for Terry to, to do this. Uh, we did shows. Yeah. While. We did a few shows while Terry was playing uh, with, with Great White. We did a... Uh, a few shows in Europe, in fact, and uh, we toured Europe for a couple of weeks. We did some uh, cruises. We always do those cruises here. We did a few shows here and there, but to actually, you know, to to get on the road and to do shows every weekend like we do now, you, you can't double dip. It's very hard to double dip. So uh, when Terry was let go, we decided, well, shit, now we could kind of get back to what we used to do. 
and have fun with it. You know, Gary didn't really have fun, and, and we always talk about that. We X Y Z is a fun band. We we get along. We 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 chase we chase women around the parking lot, and it, it, it's it's a it's a band. We want to have fun. A great white, not so fun. <laughs> it's it's interesting. Um, Said no more. I don't I don't know I don't know Pat if you know uh, Tony Montana who used to play bass for Great White. That's right. That's right. Um, I I interviewed him probably about five or six weeks ago, yeah. and I talked about the the albums that he did with the band. He came in on the One Spit and Tour, then he did Twice Shy, and he did uh, Hooked. Yeah. And he yeah. he gave off the same vibes that you were that it wasn't really a lot of fun being in the band. That no. there, there was there was a lot of um stuff going on there that he tried to stay well away from. You know, Tony Montana is actually a, a, an amazing guitar player, a great bass player for sure. He's a very good guitar player and a very very talented singer. In fact, him and Brian Markovich, a drummer from Los Angeles, and I on bass, we're going to do a trio at one point. It was going to be Tony Montana, Brian Markovich, and Nate Fontaine on bass. And I asked him when we started rehearsal, I said, why the fuck would you walk away from Great White? They, they're making money. And he said, they're not fun. <laughs> yeah, that's what there he said. That's, yeah, what he, yeah. that's, that's what he right, said. Yeah, that's what he said to me, Pat. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it should be fair, we... we and, and I went to a couple of great white shows to support Terry, you know, because I, I really, I'm a very open-minded guy. And I went to a couple of shows. We went backstage and, and it was really, they're, they're really far from fun. They're, they're, it's, it's kind of a dreadful uh, atmosphere there backstage, you know, it's very quiet. Nobody talks to each other. It's, it, it's not really my, 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 my idea of a rock and roll band. You know, a rock and roll band is a band that goes out there and just party. And that's what we do. We go out there, we have a good time, we're friends, we laugh, we giggle, we, we play tricks on each other, you know, we, we, we just want to make it like, like it's a party, like it was back in the 80s, you know. Mm. And that, it, it, that's okay. Some bands want to party and some bands do not. And that's mm. okay. So speaking of party and Pat, I, do, I want to get into the debut album, right? Yeah. Um, what bands were you guys playing with before you got signed? Were, were you were you supporting some of the bands that were already signed to major labels? You know, we we were one of the last bands to get signed. Uh, Warrant got signed maybe six or seven months before us on uh, uh, CBS, I think, or was it Columbia at the time? And we thought, dude, we played with Warrant so many fucking times. When are we going to get signed? You know, it was kind of a, almost we were so happy with them for them. Jenny Lane was a good friend. We were very de- delighted for him, and we were fucking completely supportive. But at the same time, it was kind of depressive, depressing, because we thought, a fact, when are we going to get a deal? But we did play with all those bands from that era, you know, from uh, from the Strip, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, and we got signed in 89. Uh, we were kind of the last ones. I think Little Caesar got signed after us. And that was about it. And after that, the, the Nirvana thing started to, to explode on the radio and grunge took over the airwaves. It was kind of a, the end of, a, of the strip, you know. Hmm. So uh, we looked at it like we started in Hollywood in 84. Our first show was in 1984. So from 84 to 89, it's five years. We waited and, and struggled and played every club. We played with all those bands, you know, all those those, those bands from that time, you know, uh, 
all the the, 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 the the guys that were walking the streets, the Guns N' Roses and the Poison and the Warrants and, and, and the Kicks and the LA Guns and all those kids, you know, we, we were all dreaming the same dreams. And, uh, and there were tons of others that you never heard of, people that never got signed. You know, the Taz. I remember Taz and, and bands that, that, that we thought, they, oh, my God, they were selling out. But you know what? They never got a deal. Huh. So we're lucky we got a deal. So And yes, we were associated with all those bands. But again, you know, what's funny is as soon as Grunge came around, we, we kind of lost touch with all those guys. I used to talk to Jimmy on the phone all the time. And all of a sudden, Grunge was so 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 uh, everywhere that we kind of felt like we were out of place and people left town and people started to, to, to pack up their guitars and, 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 and opted to get other jobs, you know? So uh, from that era, yes, we were friends with a lot of bands. And after that, we kind of lost touch really hmm. uh, with, with a lot of those kids. Hmm. So Pat, how did you end up on Enigma records? Enigma Records was a bit of an accident. We we were really it was uh must it must have been eighty seven, eighty eight maybe. We were really uh, uh, kind of almost tempted to go back to Europe, you know, where we started. I, I was almost uh, I was almost to the point say, you know what, dude, it's probably not going to happen. We were signed to Atlantic in eighty six, and Atlantic uh, put us in the studio at Cherokee. And we did a, a demo, and they didn't like the demo. And they told us, dude, we don't like your stuff. It's too light. So uh, I, 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 Terry and I, we thought, you know what? We, we're going to give it another year, 87, 1987. And we were like, ah, you know what? They don't like what we do here. We're maybe a little too light, uh, too too melodic, too too pretty. too. It's just, I don't know. Everybody had black hair and eyeliner, and, and we didn't do that, you know? Uh-huh. So we thought that's it, and then we we nevertheless we went back to rehearsal, like we normally do. Typically Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we did three days in a row. And one night going to rehearsal, uh, there was a motorcycle in front of us, and the, the 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 guy that was driving the motorcycle dropped his glove. He dropped. He was messing around with something, and he dropped his glove, and then he took off. So I picked up the glove. With my car and I followed him. And I at the next red light, I honked at him and said, "Hey, moron, you dropped your glove." And uh, he was very he was very appreciative. And he asked a few questions. I said, "Yeah, we're a band. We were going to rehearsal." He was like, "Well, give me your cassette." With a cassette at the time. So yeah. I gave him the cassette. I gave him a fucking cassette. <laughs> and the cassette was uh, Inside Out. Was it was recorded at the uh, at, at Cherokee for Atlantic Records. I gave him the version of what we had that we had done for Atlantic. And I was like, oh, I see you later, see you later. That's it. You know, we did this every day. We did, we gave cassettes to everybody that, that, that even was asking for it or not. Yeah. And the next, and the next day, this guy called me and said, I really like that song inside out. Do you mind if I play it for my boss? And I was like, well, who the fuck are you? And, uh, it, it, it you know, his boss was, was, uh, this girl, Sarah. At uh, 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 at Enigma, and Sarah is still a very good friend of mine today. Uh, she came to the whiskey show the other day, in fact, and uh, she loved the demo, and she brought it all the way to the top. And uh, 
it really took only a couple of days. I can't remember it, but the next next couple of days, they sent a limo to the house, and then we got in the car. They took us to 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 their headquarters, and they had posters of Motley Crue and Poison and the Cramps, and they, they, they had all those bands. And they, we were, and, they, and they asked us, "Would you would you guys like a record deal?" <laughs> and we were like, "I I just fucking with it." <laughs> And that was it. It was we were wow. we were signed in a matter of days. It was fantastic. Yeah. fantastic. Pat, did you do any showcase gigs where you go up and you play, and all these record companies come in to an empty, basically an empty room, and just stand there and watch you? Absolutely, we did a showcase. I remember vividly. It was fucking brutal. We did a showcase <laughs> for, for uh, John Cloudner at the time worked for Geffen, uh, a very intimidating looking fellow. He looked like ZZ Top. And he showed up with sunglasses. He was the most powerful man in Hollywood. And we, he came to rehearsal. And it was him and an assistant. And uh, we had bought all the party savers. And the the, bo- the booze, the, the blow, uh, we, we everything was ready. You know, We had our manager there. Everybody was doing cocaine. I was being on cocaine at the time. Don't tell the police. <laughs> and so we, we, we did blow. We fucking, we, we, we drank, we toasted, we exchanged a few jokes. And then he said, hey, guys, play me a couple of songs. So we got, we got behind our, our gear and he was suddenly so fucking quiet, you know, and we played a couple of songs. And I thought, that is just not rock and roll. That is just not the way it should be done. And uh, he sat there very silently, you know, listened. We did two songs, I think. We stopped, and he was like, okay, well, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, and then he left, and we never heard from him. <laughs> we did, it, was, it was like, man, we'll never fucking do that again. <laughs> I fucking hated it. I, was, I, I bought all that booze for nothing. <laughs> wow. Wow. So we, did, we did a few of those things, and then after that, I was like, dude, if we're going to invite anybody for, for a showcase, let's invite them to a club where there's people. And it's noisy, and it's 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 loud, and it's live, you know, and it's it's where there's a vibe of some sort. So after that, we we didn't do the the one on one showcases. We did it at clubs, and we did it for a bunch bunch of labels, every fucking label you know, at the time: MCA, RCA, Columbia, Epic, fucking Polygram, you name it. We did them all, you know. Yeah. And uh, it is what it is. Some of them like it. Some of them say, ah, you know what? We'll We'll, we'll we'll keep in touch. Give us another demo, and they kind of string you along for a few months. And some of them are like, no, it's not really our thing. You guys are too light. You're too heavy. You're too big. You're too short. You're too fat. Whatever. <laughs> and then eventually, it was Enigma that really said, "Hey guys, we we like the stuff, and we think you guys are great, and uh, we want to make you a deal." And that was it. And uh, uh, after that, they transferred us to EMI Capital. And we were uh, we were happy to go there because uh, it was the big time. It was the the, the the capital towers in Hollywood. Everybody wants to be there, you know. And it was the limo service and the fucking first class airfare to anywhere we wanted, tour buses and MTV and all that. So I, I can't say a bad thing about the big corporations because really it was a fantastic time. Focus. Now, Pat, who did you want to produce the debut album? Did you? Did all of you guys want Don Dokken and that was the only name on the list? No, not at all. In fact, uh, uh, we didn't. 
uh, uh, seek production, we thought if we get a great engineer and we go in there, we could probably do it ourselves. We were very, uh, very sure of that. And we actually did some great demos ourselves. Uh, but the label thought, you know what? Uh, what about another musicians? Another bunch of guys to help you out with that. And we were like, well, yeah, who do you have in mind? And they said Don Dokken. And that was a, I'm a, I am a big fan of Don Dokken. In fact, we just fled uh, M3 with Dokken. And I, I, was, I always, always respected his work. Uh, all of them. Mick Brand, George Lynch, uh, Don Dokken, of course, Jeff Bilton. Uh, really great guys, all of them. And I always, I always thought, well, shit. If a, if a pro musician like Don Dawkins wants to come in the studio and, and, and help us out, why not? That's a great idea. Huh. Uh, and, and, and that's how it went. You know, he was he came to rehearsal a few times and he, he didn't he didn't come as a producer. He came as a as a fellow musician and he sat with us and we played some songs together and he he tweaked a few things and he he was involved, but not too involved. And he was really it was a great time because he was just a little bit more advanced than we, we were, a little bit more experienced. He had gotten slapped around a little more than we had, and we benefited from all that experience. Mm. Now, Pat, back going in to do the first record, how much studio experience had did you guys have? Well, you know, when you're in a band, you, 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 you have to do demos all the time. And at the time, really, we rehearsed in a studio that also uh, had a control room. So we had quite a bit of experience, I must say, because we often told the owner of the rehearsal place, hey, dude, can we take over your control room for a little bit? And he had a decent Trident board and an MCI machine, 24-track, uh, all analog, of course. So we were kind of familiar uh, with, with all that. And uh, it was never, like, intimidating uh, uh, to me to go behind a, a board in a machine and record something. Hmm. Uh, I'm like great at it. No, I'm not. I'm not the best at it, but I, I can manage myself around a recording studio fairly, fairly, fairly quickly. You know. Hmm. Uh, now, of course, with Pro Tools and Logic and whatever software you have, that's like you can do it in your kitchen. You know. Yeah, you don't even. Have can, to, you don't, Pat. You don't even have to play. You can get the computer to do it for you. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I know, I know. And yeah. We've done that. In fact, last couple of couple of months, we we were in the studio doing some demos, and now it, for the you know, as far as drum tracks, really for a demo anyway, you don't even want to play drums. You're like, ah, we'll do it with the machine in two seconds. Dude. Yeah, yeah. Now for the real deal, of course, when we do the real deal starting in July, huh. we 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 I'm going to insist. Uh, 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 we're going to insist on the real deal. So it's going to be real drums real guitars, real bass, uh, real keys, real keyboards, real vocals, real backup vocals. We're going to try to really do the tracking of it as organic as we can. Of course, after that's done, you transfer everything into Pro Tools and you do some editing, of course. Uh, you, uh. Cut, you, cut, you, you, know, you cut the parts you don't want and you, you paste a few things here and there, but we're going to insist on a very organic experience. Yeah. So, so Pat, how many songs did you bring to Don that were completed for the first record? Because there's only 10 on it. You must have had more than that. Yeah, we had 18, I remember. Uh, 18 songs. And he, he went through them. 
and sometimes he, uh, he, he got rid of a couple and we agreed and there's a couple we disagreed on. So we worked on them for a few, few weeks, a few rehearsals maybe. And uh, eventually we were like, yeah, you know what? He's probably right. He's probably right. He's probably right. So we, we, we recorded 12 at a studio in, uh, in, in California. And then, uh, we, at the end of the day, just selected 10 when we were done and that's it. Mm. Now, I, I've interviewed Don and I've interviewed guys that have wor- worked with him and he even admitted himself that he can be tough to work for in the studio, that he's very, he can be very demanding. Did you have that experience with him at all at times? Yeah, yeah. He, he's kind of tough because he knows what he wants to hear and he was tough with everybody. He was tough with the, with the, uh, the drummer and the bass player, the guitar player, the same. He was tough with everybody. I must say that he was tough but very helpful. So helpful, in fact, that I'll tell you my side of the story. Uh, when it was time for me to do bass, I'm, I'm far from being the, the. I'm not even a decent bass player. I'm a mediocre bass player, and 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 sometimes recording is a struggle for me. And uh, he was nice enough to bring in Glenn Hughes, <laughs> <laughs> and and I sat with Glenn, and that's the guy from fucking Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat with this guy, and Glenn was nice enough to say, "You know, Don is a good friend of mine, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show you how to play bass." And I was like, "Well, uh, yes, sir, yes, sir." <laughs> so I sat I sat with Glenn, and he showed me what what sounded good, and he showed me what I was doing wrong. He said, "Well, no, that part you're doing that part wrong. You can't do it like that. You gotta do it." So it was a, a fantastic experience. So yes, Don was tough, but he always brought some kind of solution. And I think that is what a producer should be. Tough, demanding, but he has the tools or the friends or the connection or the talent to let you know what he wants to hear and to implement that. And you know what? I rip him up every fucking day because I'm involved in production nowadays. And I, I produced a couple of, I live in Las Vegas. And I, I produced a couple of bands in Vegas. And I always try to do what Don does or did, which is, you know, you're tough. You demand what you want to hear, but you don't just sit there with, with your hands in your pocket. You help out. You say, look, I want to hear this and I'm going to show you how to do it. Hmm. I think I think that's the way. He, I, took, I, I mean, every producer is a different way. On the second record, it was completely different. But on the first record, it was very helpful to have a guy that was demanding but willing to get his hands dirty. Yeah, so he'd actually come around the glass into the studio and say, and be able to pick up so, an instrument and say, All the "This, time. this is what I All want." The time. Yeah, he would sit with the guitar, show us what he wanted, show it, sit down with the bass. He would go behind the mic. He would say, look, I want to hear more of a melody like that. He would, he would, he would get behind the drums and say, no, I want a right cymbal right here. He was very involved. And, 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 and we were kind of shocked. We were like, fuck, this guy's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know what? It, it, was, it was a great experience. We had, we had moments of despair, of course, when you're an artist. You don't always get along with everybody. Some some moments were tough, and we argued, and we yelled at each other, and he threw me out of the studio a few times. Fair enough, but uh, you know it, it is what it is. It, it, it's it's a bunch of guys getting together in one room trying to create a product. There's some friction always, but it is a very friction that I think often enough ends up uh, uh, on tape. 
in uh. the music. In, in the case of George Lynch and Don Duncan, there was so much friction, in fact, that it's documented everywhere now. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, I think when I listen back to Duncan, it's that friction between Don and George that really created the magic. Yeah, yeah, true. So, Pat, did you track your bass playing with Paul, or did you all track your instruments separately? It was all separately. We did a, what we did is a pilot track. So we all go together. Uh, we play the songs uh, as isolated as possible uh, with, with uh, uh, in different rooms, if you will. But we had a line of sight on each other through the glass window with headphones. So we all played together and then we stopped and then we replaced what we played individually for even better quality. Some of it, I would say maybe 10% of what we play live survived. Most of it was done after the fact, if you will, as a second pass or a third pass. Mm. Yeah, I, I got to ask, at that stage, all those songs, you probably would have been playing them live together for years anyway. So you would have been really tight as a unit. I'm, I've talked to a lot of bands from, you know, from back then and like the rhythm section always recorded together. It was always the bass and the drummer recorded. And then they might play, they might play with the guitar player and then he'd overdub the solos and then the vocals would be, uh, would be be after that. So it's interesting that you all did it separately. You're actually the first. One of the reasons is is I I redid the bass because Glenn Hughes came to the picture and he listened back to the track. This part fucking sucks. So I was like, oh, shit, I already recorded it. It was like, dude, this part fucking sucks. So he, he, we went back and I was like, well, okay, I'll redo the bass. You know, and uh, he sat with me and we redid the bass. It was fantastic. To, I mean, just to sit with Glenn Hughes, dude. That's that's the guy that, that, that played with fucking David Coverdale and shit. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And I... And and he and and, he, and of course and I mean I was a Deep Purple fan way back in the day so I I was so in awe that I would have done pretty much whatever the fuck he wanted me to do you know mm. I'll tell you I'll tell you a good one Pat about Glenn Hughes yeah um, yeah when Lynch Mob did the second record at Robert Mason uh, yeah, Keith, Keith they brought in Glenn Hughes to help Robert with the singing. <laughs> for sure. Oh wow! Yeah, Robert sure. so, hey, is a fucking great singer. He know? is, but he, like you've Glenn, yeah, you've, yeah. you've Glenn Hughes coming in to sing, and you're like, yeah. oh, oh shit, I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> that would shut me up right away. Like, oh yeah, I know because you know. To be fair, I remember when we fucked around in the studio on a on a day off or something, and Glenn would would come and sing and. And do a couple of lines with Terry. I mean, Glenn, uh, Terry's a fucking great singer. And Glenn is also like fucking, oh my God, so powerful and so on it. it, it, it the guy's fucking amazing. Fucking he, amazing. And he's still out there doing it. Yeah, he, he wasn't sober back then, was he? He only got sober in the early 90s, I believe. No, actually, you know what? He, he, when we came, he came in the studio, uh, he was actually in the process of getting his, his act together. So he was not drinking. And I remember he used to jog. Him and I, we jogged around the block because he wanted to get in shape. And I told him that we I, I jog every day in the, in the Runyon Canyon in Hollywood. So we went jogging together. And so he was not uh, completely sober, but he was, he was almost there. Almost there. I think I saw him one time with a beer in the studio, and that was it. So uh-huh. he was really trying to get his shit together. 
Mm. So can I ask? Yeah, he, he had a problem for sure a few years prior. Mm. So can I ask Tony a question there? Sure. Um, Tony, sure, um, what's the hardest song on the debut album to play? The hardest song on the debut album to play, you know, uh, um, "Nice Day to Die" was was a tough one because uh, live, I, I, I had to extend the solo, so I, I had to kind of write my own solo, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the songs go, um, yeah, nice day that was probably pretty tough. Inside Out took me a while to get the correct rhythm. I was always missing that one rhythm. So it was like little, little things, little, little mix and naps here and there that, uh, that I'd have to, that I wasn't doing right. And, you know, Terry would look at me and be like, That's not, that doesn't sound right. I'm like, well, I'm doing what's on the record. Then I listen back. I'm like, Oh God, I'm missing that one little that one little screen, you know. Like, so uh, all all the songs really were fairly because I heard the song so many times, and you know, being a guitar player, when you hear something over and over and over again, you get it stuck in your head, and you you act, and I was able to put it to my hands. But uh, um, probably "Nice Day to Dive" was the toughest just to try to get solid with the drums, you know, just to get it tight, mm. you know. Like I could, I could probably, you know, you know, you could hear something and play it once and it's sloppy and right. But to actually play Mark's style was always a little bit of a challenge, even though it was very similar to mine. But I really wanted to capture what what he was putting out there. I wanted to, I wanted to have that same emotion, mm. even though the songs might not have been technically difficult for me. Um, trying to um, to emulate the expression and the vibe that he was putting out there, that, that was where it got tough because then I, I had to become Mark. You know? mm. um, I had to get into his head and what, how he would do it. And then I would kind of put my own spin on it a little bit, you know, but uh, I, you know, trying to catch the vibe was what I was, it's, it's, as a, as a musician, really, when you're, when you're imitating someone else's music, uh, um, in this case, I wanted to be as close as possible because I am, kind of replacing him in in the live so people are coming to you know coming to see the bands and i'm i'm filling in mark's shoes so i gotta okay i need to i need to sound like him a little bit <laughs> yeah you yeah know what i mean so, yeah but it, it, it wasn't so much the technical technically hard it was it was getting that same attitude the same vibe the same tone hmm. you know so that, that 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 was always the tricky part, you know. And I, and honestly, doing that made me a better guitar player. Hmm. You know, learning learning Mark's, you know, trying to imitate Mark's style, actually made me better a better musician. Hmm. So Tony, there's ten songs on the record. Have you played all of them live with X Y Z on the first album? Yeah. Have you played every song on the first album live over the years with the band? Played every song? God, no, no. There's probably a couple we never played. You know, um. I almost want to say yes because I because I think we might have tried a song here, tried a song there, and maybe only done it once. But I can't think of one that we didn't do. We did Maggie, come on, love me. I'd have been love with we did that. Uh, nice day to die. Uh, take what you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. Yeah, yeah. Souvenir. You done souvenirs? You done souvenirs? Yep, yep. Souvenirs. Fall the night. After the rain. After yeah, the rain, I guess we do it. so yeah, I think yeah. you've done them all. <laughs> you've done them all. <laughs> at one point or another, maybe maybe not all at one show, but I think over the 
the time that we played, yeah, I'm pretty sure we, yeah, pretty sure we. Yeah. Pat, I'm going to rack your brain now. Um, yeah. <laughs> normally, when a band goes out and does it, does tours on the first record, it plays all the songs because it doesn't have anything else to play. Did you yeah, play? Yeah. Did you did you play all the all all of the album with Mark and Paul when you did when you went out first? Yeah, you're right. We did we did play uh, uh, most of of the record because that's the only songs people know. Yeah. But I think at, at the time we may have extended some songs to play them a little bit different from the record, like Follow the Night. You know, we did a, a bit of a break in there. We, we were trying to make them a little more a little more lively. But yeah, you know, on your first record, you you go out. That that's all you know. That's all people know. They don't want to hear anything else. So you're kind of stuck doing what people want to hear. Hmm. Now, wh- who did you go out on tour with on the first album in America? Our first tour was uh, uh, Ted Nugent. Okay. It was fun. Uh, Ted Ted actually uh, Ted was in the studio doing Damn Yankees, and they were they were having lunch, and. Uh, uh, they, they saw a video of Inside Out on TV, and he, he, he actually told, called his manager. For some fucking reason, they got our number. Then they called us at the house, and the, the phone rings, and uh, somebody says, hey, may I, may I speak with Mark? And we said, well, fuck, Mark is kind of busy now. Uh, I'll take a message. And the guy said, yeah, this is Ted Nugent. Tell him to call me back. And I said, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Frank, yeah. I hung up. I said, "Go fuck yourself." And I hung up. The phone, the phone rings back, and it's Ted, laughing, saying, "No, dude, it's Ted Nugent. I want you guys to come to the studio today, and I, I want to chat with you." So we we're like, "What the fuck?" So we did go. We went to the studio. We met the, the Dan Yankees. It's pretty fun. And Ted was like, "Look." Uh, Mark, I want you to show me something on guitar. And we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's fucking Ted Nugent, dude. So Ted and fucking Mark sat on the couch in the studio and and fucking Mark showed him how to do the solo for Inside Out or something. We were like, I can't believe this guy just called us just for that. <laughs> and then when it was all over, he said, dude, I, I, I really I really like you. I mean, we, we stood in the back. He was talking to Mark most of the time. And, and he said, Mark, I really like your style. Uh, get your shit together. You're getting on a tour bus tomorrow. You're going to open for me for a, for a couple of months. We were like, what the <laughs> So the next couple of days, we got our shit together. We, got a, we, got a, we packed our shit. We got a tour bus. And we started in Detroit, which was uh, New Year's Eve, 89, I think. It, it was my first, our first, all of us, our first stadium ever. And it was uh, opening for Ted Nugent, of course. Ted is from Michigan, so Detroit, that's his fucking thing, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. It was Cobo Hall in, in Detroit, and it was just such a an amazing amazing moment for me and the guys to walk on stage on uh, on New Year's Eve at packed stadium uh, in front of Ted Nugent. It was just a fucking thing I'll never forget. So uh, Ted Nugent is a big fucking mouth and, and I don't always I don't always agree with him on, on, on anything, but you know what? My hat is off to him because he, he as 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 obnoxious as he could be he was kind enough as to take us out on the road and show us the ropes and 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 give me my first stadium. Oh. Thank you, thank you. So, Pat, who else did you go out with 
on, on for the first record? Was it just Ted, or was there other other acts as well? I think after Ted, we we gathered a little bit of steam. We did a a few weeks with different bands. We did a few weeks with Alice Cooper. In fact, when Eric Singer was playing drums, that's how we became friends with Eric Singer before before he went to to uh, uh, Kiss, of course. Mm-hmm. And then we did a bunch of shows with, we did a lot of the festivals, you know, uh, at the time, the, the Summerfest and, uh, and all those, those, uh, uh festival where you kind of interact with all the big bands at the time, you know, from Kingdom Come to, to LA Guys to the Poison of the Days and all that. So, uh, after that, we just, it was more like a week here, a week there, or two weeks with one band, two weeks with another, that type of thing. Uh, we were up for the Aerosmith tour, and we declined their financial incentive. They wanted money from us, and we refused that because it was really not my cup of tea. Uh, I, I, I don't have a great uh, uh, affinity for Aerosmith, never did. Uh, but uh, uh, the band Honeymoon Suites got the tour instead of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, to this day, I always, I always think, was it a good idea to tell Aerosmith to get fucked? <laughs> and I don't know if it was a good idea. Because we, we told them, we told our agency, our agency was Monterey, an agency that doesn't exist anymore. And I told my agent, I said, tell Aerosmith to go fuck themselves. <sighs> they wanted too much money from us to open for them. Wow. And I, it could have been a mistake. And in fact, Terry and I were always argue about that because I think it was not a mistake. And Terry says, yes, it was a mistake. We should, <laughs> we should have gone out with Aerosmith and paid the price they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what it is. Well, you know, the first record was, was our, first, uh, our first foot through the door, so to speak. And we were happy to go out with anyone, you know, from mm. clubs to stadiums with Ted. We, we played everywhere, the festivals, the dives, the arenas, the theaters. We did it all. It was fantastic. Uh-huh. I think we ended the year with Foreigner, or was it on the second record? It was possibly on the second record. Yeah. So the 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 the, the tour we had uh, on the second record was the, our last tour of the the nineties, if you will. Ninety two. Ninety two. Foreigner, yeah. which uh, on this particular one I insisted on that tour because I'm a huge huge fan of Foreigner. And that was an experience uh, uh, that was fantastic, really. It was months and months and months of touring, uh, uh, tour buses, full catering, uh, limos everywhere. It was fantastic. Hmm. That's actually right. And that's how we met Tony. That's that's actually when I came in. I'm sorry, it was 91. It was 91. The end of 91. And halfway through the foreigner tour. It was halfway through. And and I flew out to Lake Charles. And I watched the show. That's yes, right. Opened up for Foreigner. And I watched the show. And after the show, Mark left. Yeah. Hugged yeah. goodbye. And I got on the tour bus for the first time in my, in my freaking life. And, <laughs> and got on, and drove to Orlando. And then yeah, that's we, right. we did a few, we headlined a few club tours. Yeah. And I think our first show I did with Foreigner, I think we played uh, in Philadelphia. I think it might have been. It could be. It was at the Tower Theater in yeah, Philadelphia. That's right. I believe. I, mean, I remember I had, I'm born and raised in New Jersey, so I had family come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See me and uh, and yeah, that was that was my first experience with the foreigners. Fucking great time with foreigners. Fucking great time. Was um was that when they had Johnny Edwards singing with them? Yeah, with Johnny Edwards yep. singing. Fucking yep. Johnny is fantastic. Mm. And then uh, uh, Mick Jones uh, had oh. a, a a Mick Jones for a minute or two 
before foreigner had a mini career in France with a, a, a rock star in France called Johnny Hallyday. And it, it, he wanted to practice his French. So Mick Jones would hang out on our tour bus, chit-chatting with Terry and us and I. And we were always like, I do, we don't really want to speak French. We, we just want to do cocaine and fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great experience. It, it was the time, I think, I don't know if they were sober at the time, but it was more, it was kind of a foreigner is a little bit of a different animal. It's not really rock and roll. It's more pop music with a rock twist, you know. Mm. So they were kind of clean. It was very organized, very, very corporate, but great guys. Great fucking band. And every time you hear those songs, you're like, oh, my God, all those songs are major hits. Oh. It, it, you can't deny that. Every song they play was a major hit. And oh. you're like, oh, my God, shit. Fantastic. Yeah. Pat, I want to ask you about one show. And um, you, know, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from Ireland, right? So we got yeah, stuck. Yeah. We got starved with all these American bands over there that they never really came over to to Ireland. They might play the UK. Now, I, I recall yeah. that there was a series of shows in the Astoria in London, I think, called the American Dream Series. And they I got remember that. they got Badlands over. They got Shadow King over, which was Lou Graham's band of Vivian Campbell. And I believe <laughs> I believe XYZ were one of the bands they brought over for one show. Do you have any memories of that? That's right. That's right. I remember that. American Dreams. We were invited. Uh, and, you know, I don't remember the year. Not sure about the year. Yeah, because I, uh, I don't know whether it's the debut album or the second record. I think it was the first record. Okay. It was EMI Europe. Very nice people. We went to the EMI uh, office in London. There were, there were XYZ posters everywhere. We, we were shocked. And then we did the show in London. Yeah, it was a great time. I remember the, the venue, the story. It was cool. It was a very cool show. Uh, I don't, where, where's there, is there another band before us that I want to say some, was there another Hollywood band with us? I'm not sure. Or was there a local band opening? I, I'm not sure. But yeah, you're right. Badlands did it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Badlands. Mm -hmm. Still, we just heard it in the radio yeah. today. So fucking good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't, uh, I don't recall much of the experience. It was kind of interesting because we were about to get signed to Gibson as an endorsement and we didn't want to travel with gear. So I went to London without my base and the Gibson office in London said, don't worry about it. We'll get you a base when you get there. They showed up with bases and none of them kind of worked for me. So it was a little bit of a struggle that show, I remember, because I played with some kind of guitar that didn't work for me. I don't know what it was. And it was the same for Mark. We were provided with instruments, which is kind of bizarre. It's the first time and the last time we let that happen. But the, the Gibson people in London were very, very friendly people and very helpful, but for some reason, the gear they brought us didn't really work for us. So it was a bit of a struggle, that show. But nevertheless, uh, for, for a band to play the UK, we always do it with a lot of respect, because at the end of the day, dude, the UK is where it kind of all started, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for, us, for us anyway, you know, the Stones and the Beatles and Zeppelin and, and those bands that really shaped modern rock and roll. Uh, and I don't want to 
discredit all the American bands, like, of course, like Elvis Presley or Robert Johnson, of course, or, or Chuck Berry. Of course, those guys had a huge influence on, on, on us as well. But really, we came from Europe, and it was all that Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and, and the Stones, really. And to play in front of an English crowd is always kind of humbling a little bit, because we're like, wow, we better get our shit together here, because this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a great experience. For some fucking reason, we never played Ireland. We've never been to Dublin. I can't believe it. It's 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 an embarrassment. Um, you know? Do you know how many musicians I've had tell me that they've all they've all made it to England and the mainland Europe? They never made it to Ireland. They don't know why. A so lot what of them. It, what, what do you think that is? Is it because of of a lack of venues there, or lack of support, or lack no, of people? No, or? no, not anymore. I'll t- I'll 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 give you one reason why, Pat. Um, yeah. Back then, you were dealing with a different currency, and you were also dealing with a, with an island that had you were only going to really play in one city. You couldn't really play anywhere else because there was only four million people living there, and there was a million people living in Dublin. So you could go to the UK, you could play London, Manchester, Liverpool. You could go up to Glasgow. You could do Edinburgh. You had to go across across water to Ireland to play one gig, and you're well, talking about Belfast. Well. Yeah, but Belfast is sterling, so that's part of the UK technically. So you're dealing with the right, same currency right. Uh, right. in our in the Republic. Now, now it's all euros. Now it's all it's all the same. You know, I you're right. You have to change currencies for just one gig, and and yet it could be that financially it was not feasible for yeah. anyone. Yeah, you know? yeah. So they 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 used to bring over they'd bring over the Bon Jovis and Metallica would always play. Yeah, for sure. Um, but you had all these big bands in the late '80s, the likes of Warrant and Winger and all these bands. They might play in the UK. None of them played in Ireland. None of them. I had to come That's here. I had to come here. Uh, I I moved here nine years ago. So the first year I was here, I went to seventeen concerts. And it, there was Cinderella, there was Striper, there was all these eighties fans I'd never seen before that I just said yeah, right and I and I had a list on the wall and I was taking all the bands off. And you're one I haven't seen. You're actually playing up near me, I think, next month. You're playing in New Bedford um uh, uh, New Bedford. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. So where where do you live now? I'm about an hour and a half from there. Oh great, we'd love to have you. Love to have you in uh, in uh, New Bedford. I'm going to try and make it down, Pat. I'm going to really try. So before I leave you go, Pat, I just want to ask Tony a question. Um, yeah. Tony, what's your favorite X Y Z songs to play? Favorite X Y Z song? Um, it's a tough one. You know, probably "Nice Day to Die." I just I love that chorus. I love the riff. It's it's a riff I wish I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but honestly, there, I, there, there's so many. I mean, I was, I was such a fan of the, really the entire first album. But that's going to be the song, I think, for me that really sticks out. Nice Day to Die. Mm. That's what I would say. Yeah. If I had to choose, if, if, you're, if you're making me choose a favorite, that, that's, that's what I got. Okay. Pat, I'm, I'm, Pat, I'm not going to get into the second record, but I do want to ask you, which, of, the, of the, the first two records, which one is your favorite? Well, you know, it's it's it's, it's tough. I, I really have an affinity for the second record because I was more involved with the production of it. Uh, the record label was nice enough to uh, to acknowledge that we had sold enough records of the first one that they could actually trust me with the, uh, some of the production on the second one. So I was able to hire the producer I wanted, and I was able to really be there every step of the way. 
and uh, there's some great songs on the second record. Uh, uh, it, it was a more bluesy. I think "Face Down in the Gutter" is something that uh, that represented the band more so than "Inside Out," if you will. Because mm-hmm. uh, Terry's kind of a bluesy guy, you know. So I go back and forth, of course, and I think the answer lies in that new record we're going to make. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little bit. It's going to be a cross between the first and the second record. It's going to be a cross between. XYZ, XYZ, and XYZ Hungry. And I think we're going to meet a little bit somewhere in the middle, a little bit of that that blues, but still mixed with dexterity and, and musicality. Mm, nice, nice. Do you, do you ever think you're going to break out maybe one or two of the new songs in the, like, in the next couple of months and maybe try them out live? Yeah, I think, we, you know, what's, what's interesting is when you, when you write a record, you always have, in the back of your mind, you have this thing, are we ever going to play this shit live? And often <laughs> enough, you don't. You, know, yeah. you only play three songs out of a record. So we keep that in mind, and then we, we have the, the benefit of having a, 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 a large enough studio, a large enough room at the recording studio that we can all play together. So that's fantastic. We can set up, all play together. So we will, we will play those songs as, as a band first before we, we actually press record. Now, uh, are we ever going to play them live? I think we'll try to do one. But, you know, the, the old joke, when an old band says, hey, we want to play a new song, then everybody goes to the bar for a beer, you know? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> people are people, and they want to hear the stuff they heard on the radio 20 years ago, and that's fair, and that's what we're going to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so Pat and Tony, do you want to give out the social media sites where people can get in touch with the band? Yeah, for sure. Uh, easy enough. Uh, Facebook, of course, uh, 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 is is always on for us. So we have a website to uh, uh, officialxyz.com. Uh, we're very easy to find. You punch in my name, Pat Fontaine nine zero, on Facebook. I come right up, and uh, we we try as hard as we can uh, to spend a few hours a day on social media. You know, connecting with the rest of the world. Nowadays, it's easy to find anyone. And if we're not in jail, and if we're not in the hospital, <laughs> we will get back to you. Yeah. Here, Tony, I forgot to ask you, which of the first two records is your favorite? You know, I love the songs in the first record, but, you know, I love the sound of the seconds. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's tough for me because if I had to say a favorite, I love the sound of the second. So... Even though Nice Day to Die and all those songs are probably my favorite, but I, I just, I love the, the tone and the guitar sound of the second record. Like Pat said, that, that, that record really, I think, was, was more of the sound of the band, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But, but it's tough. You know, tomorrow, in five minutes, I'll probably give you another answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pat and Tony, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Hey, it's pleasure, Richard. Pleasure, pleasure Richard. Thank, thank you for your time. Uh, yeah. You were very patient, and uh, we really appreciate it. All right. Well, hopefully I'll see you next month then. Love to meet you. Yeah, no problem. All right. See you soon then. Okay. Bye. And that, as they say, is a wrap. Great talk with uh, Pat and Tony this week, and be on the lookout for a brand new XYZ music. So if we ran Pat and Tony this week, that means that next week we'll be running the interview that uh, Richie did with Robin McCauley. Of course, Robin McCauley's been on the show a crap load of times. 
And back again next week with all kinds of stuff because he is a busy guy as he gives us a little bit of a rundown of the project that he's currently doing with Reb Beach and Jeff Pilsen. He'll be talking about, of course, the brand new Shanker Fest release called The Revelations is coming out in a few weeks. And because Richie can keep no opportunity for a throwback topic unturned, he'll also be delving into the 30th anniversary of the Macaulay Shanker release, Save Yourself. So all kinds of good stuff next week with Robin. And I think I probably forgot a few things as well. But anyways, that's about all of it that I can remember right now. So with that, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.